This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this beautiful Sunday. I'm Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor. I am very pleased to introduce our guest, a man of great distinction, Dr. Paul Offit, Director of Vaccine Education Center and Professor of Pediatrics in Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's internationally recognized as an expert in the fields of virology and immunology. He's been a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices for the CDC, a member of the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee, a founding advisory board member for the Autism Science Foundation and the Foundation for Vaccine Research, a member of the Institute of Medicine, and the co-editor of the foremost vaccine text called Vaccines. He's the co-inventor of the vaccine for rotavirus recommended by the CDC for universal use in infants, countless awards including from the University of Pennsylvania, the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. He's been honored by Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation, I can't continue to count over 60 awards from national, international societies, foundations, university, and still finds time to share with us here on your radio doctor. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. You, you forgot to mention that I'm a loyal Colts fan, but go ahead. Oh, there you go. You know, now that you're in Philadelphia, you say Eagles. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a loyal Eagles fan. Actually, <laughs> I'm a loyal Eagles. I'm a Eagles season ticket holder, actually. But yeah. Well, I, I feel like I just introduced the Beatles. So I guess that would make me Ed Sullivan. Well, so many good things to share. Paul, again, thank you. We all began last year thinking it was the year of perfect vision, 2020. You spent your life as an infectious disease specialist. Did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine that a virus could cause such a massive crippling event? No, I mean, it's if, if, if I was 130 years old and happened to live through the 1918, 1990 influenza pandemic, um, then I would have had experience with this. But I think anybody who's alive today hasn't had an experience with anything like this. So no, it was shocking. 
And there are so many sad things that have come because of it, aside from sickness and people losing jobs and their homes and, and all sorts of sadness. There are lessons to be learned. I, I think one of them, in my mind, is humility. You know, we can be smart and educated and experienced, but who knows uh, from one minute to the next what will come our way. So we have seen a downward trend in number of cases and hospitalizations. What do you see as our next steps? Right. No, I think we're moving in the right direction. I, I think, that, first of all, the, there are three things working against this virus. One is is the summer months. This is, at its heart, a winter respiratory virus. Two is, you know, we now have about 38% of the population that's fully immunized. Plus, there's about 30% of the population that's already been naturally infected. They, too, are immune. So I think we're, if you, and obviously there's overlap between those two groups, but if you add them up, you get about 55%, maybe 60% population immunity. And I think you're seeing that. I think you're starting to see that. I do think that if we're going to really dramatically slow the spread of this virus, we need to get to about 80% population immunity, immunize about another 80 to 100 million people. And I really think then we can start to do things like not wear masks at all, indoors or outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people are beginning to uh, think of um, immune system and herd immunity and uh, mitigate and certain words that they've heard over and over again since last February, March. But I'm not sure people have a clear understanding of what herd immunity is. Can you explain that in simple terms for our listeners? Yeah, herd immunity just means that enough of the population is immune so that the virus cannot easily spread from one person to the next. So you see less and less and less spread. We're already seeing evidence of herd immunity, but we want to get to the point where there's just maybe a few hundred cases a day and fewer than 10 deaths a day. And then I think we can feel much better about things. Mm -hmm. So you say it's a winter virus. Are we expecting to see it again next winter? It depends on, on how much population immunity we develop. I think if we can get to 80% population immunity from natural infection or immunization, I think it'll be a bump next winter. Um, if we don't, and we still have, say, 40% of the population that's susceptible, and that certainly will be true, I think, in certain regions, then you'll see a surge next winter. Mm -hmm, I predict. Sure. So initially, there was a rush. People were struggling to find a site, signing up at several sites, holding onto the phone, struggling to find a spot. And now there's a lull. And we can quote statistics, but in general, why do you think people are hesitating? Do you hear much feedback? Uh, there are all kinds of reasons, but wh why do you think people are still waiting? Well, I think in some cases it's, it's just a matter of education, that if people were, it was if, if the details of these vaccines were explained to them, they would get the vaccine. I think for some people... Um, it's, it's a matter of access, and so that we can solve. I think for, for others, it's just they need a nudge, and there the incentives can work. But for, for some, and I think unfortunately it's a lot of people, it's just a matter of denialism. They deny the importance of this pandemic. They deny the importance of masks. They deny the importance of vaccines. And I think for them, it may be a matter of finding ways to uh, compel them to vaccinate, meaning mandates. Mm -hmm. And the, really the only serious side effect that well, not the only serious side effect, but the most important side effect immediately is anaphylaxis, which for our listeners means, okay, if you can explain that. Sure. That's, that's a, a sort of an acute allergic reaction um, that can cause sort of a, a dizziness and lower blood pressure, fainting, and, and worse. But uh, And that occurs in about, depending on the vaccine, between 2.5 to 5 cases per million. But the good news is it's immediately recognizable. It's easily treated with epinephrine, and no one has died from these vaccines because of these anaphylactic responses. Mm -hmm. So we tell our patients that are about to become vaccinated, if you have a history of life-threatening um, allergic reactions or you've had anaphylaxis before, or if you carry an EpiPen, bring it with you 
And of course, the sites administering the vaccines have epinephrine ready. So for the average person without an allergy history, 15 minutes we watch. Somebody with a history of allergy, we maybe keep them about 30 minutes, yes? That's right. So, so, so no previous history of food or medicine allergy is 15 minutes. If you've had a severe reaction, then 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So the RNA, uh, that's a new vaccine type. Can you explain that a little bit to, uh, to our listeners versus the more traditional vaccine that's based on adenovirus? Right. So, so t- typically, um, if, 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 what we're trying to do here is we're trying to induce an immune response to this virus, this SARS-CoV-2 virus spike protein, because that's the protein that binds virus to cells. So if you can make an antibody response to that spike protein, you can prevent the virus from binding to cells, or said another way, you can prevent the virus from infecting you. Um, Normally, what we would do is we would just give the protein, give the viral protein, which is why we make the hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine, or we would give a whole killed form of the virus as a way of giving that protein, which is the way we make, say, the inactivated polio vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine, or we would give a live weakened form of the virus like the measles vaccine. Here, what we do is we give that little gene, the messenger RNA, which goes into our cells um, and then is translated to the protein. So your body makes the spike protein, then your body makes antibodies to the spike protein. So that is different. And, and I've uh, luckily for us at Jefferson, you came and did grand rounds and the department was spellbound listening to you. And you told us, uh, and that's even four months ago, it's proven to be remarkably effective, 95%, 94, 95% are remarkably safe. Thank goodness. It really is miraculous when you think about it. Um, then just recently on May 10th, the Food and Drug Administration expanded emergency use authorization for the Pfizer uh, COVID-19 vaccine for ages 12 through 15, uh, you know, younger people. What can you tell us about that? Right. So, so the data look great. In 12 to 15-year-olds, that vaccine, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, induces an excellent immune response. It's safe. And, you know, all that was a 2,300-child study. All of the cases of disease were in the placebo group. So I think the choice is easy for parents now to vaccinate their 12 to 15-year-olds. Good. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Paul Offit from CHOP. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back on Your Radio Doctor, learning everything up to date about the COVID vaccines with Dr. Paul Offit. Paul, let's talk about the variants or those strains of uh, the coronavirus that we didn't meet in the beginning. The original virus that affected people in China is not what came to America, if I'm right about that. The variant that came here was D614J, and the Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J vaccines are all made to protect us against that particular strain. Is that still the predominant strain in the United States? No. What's happened in the U.S., first of all, you're exactly right. It, the, the virus that started in Wuhan is not the virus that left China. That was the first variant. And, and this is a bad coronavirus. It's constantly mutating so that it can reproduce itself more efficiently in, in people. So the virus that swept through Europe, swept through the United States initially was that D614G variant. And so the vaccines were made to prevent that. But the prominent strain, predominant strain now is the so-called B117 variant, the UK variant, um, for which this vaccine is highly effective. So anybody who was naturally infected or vaccinated should be protected also against this uh, B117 variant. And what about the variants from South Africa and Brazil? 
Right. So those two variants, the so-called B1351 variant or the P1 variant, um, I think that, that the va- what the vaccine will do there is that it, it's, it's not quite as good at protecting you against mild or moderate disease, but it's those vaccines, the vaccines are still very good at protecting you against severe critical disease. This probably is also going to be true for that Indian variant, the so-called B1617 variant. Yes. So for, for now, at least we haven't crossed the line where the variant's been created that despite immunization or natural infection, you still could be hospitalized or killed. That doesn't seem to have happened yet. And I wonder too, when you say that, I, I didn't think to put this in our notes before, Will that also, uh, I guess if you're not as seriously ill or as severely ill, might it protect you from being a long hauler? We're talking about that expression. Yeah, it, it's hard to know what long haulers are. I mean, I think we're still trying to understand that. Uh, it, at, in its part, I think it may be that they, this virus, which is not just a simple respiratory virus like influenza, it does seem to be able to induce an immune response where you react to your own blood vessels, right. causing vasculitis, and therefore all kinds of organ systems can get uh, involved, including the brain. So I think I think we'll learn about that. I do think that the vaccines will pre- pre- prevent, because they can prevent, pre- infection will prevent that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. So we're hopeful, um, and I always feel hopeful after I listen to you, that the variants will not keep us from reaching herd immunity if we continue to get people vaccinated, yes? Yes, and that's why it's important to be vaccinated, because as the viruses continue to replicate, they're only going to make more variants. So when you hear, for example, that in certain uh, rural populations that vaccine rates are low, that does affect us all. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that this virus is out of control in India, that always affects us all. It's a global um, but, you know, we, we are we the international travel is common. I mean, any virus that's occurring anywhere can occur here. Sure. And if a person has been infected, my question is, if a person develops natural immunity, which is what we see following an infection and they recover um, and we think that that immunity is better or stronger than that from a vaccine, do the people who recover from COVID need the vaccine? Um, I, I think we'll learn that in time. It, my sense is that that the immunity that is induced by I, induced by either natural infection or immunization is good and should provide protection. I would imagine for at least two, three years. We'll learn this over time. We will know this more. And I think what'll probably happen is it'll get less effective over, say, year two, year three, in terms of preventing mild or low moderate disease. But it'll still be highly effective against severe critical disease after a few years. I would guess. I mean, the CDC, when these vaccines initially rolled out, didn't make a distinction between those who were infected as compared to those who weren't. They said everybody should get a vaccine. I think in part because bureaucratically it would have been hard to screen everybody to see whether they had antibodies. It just would have added another layer that would have made it more difficult. And they thought worse comes to worse. And I think this was right. You'll just get a booster response to what was already your immunity from natural infection. All right. So there's no danger to getting an extra boost if you've already had COVID. Right. Because that laced into my thinking. Let's say somebody had uh, COVID and they were given the monoclonal antibodies. Should they... I know they're supposed to wait 90 days. Am I right? To make the that's vaccine right. more effective? Okay. That's right. So that's something our listeners should know that if you've had monoclonal antibody therapy, you want to wait at least 90 days after that uh, infusion. Paul, currently there are three vaccines being distributed. If we do have a booster, let's say like the flu, and we'll talk about that shortly, um, we come up with a booster every year. Will there be one booster for all the variants? Does that make sense? I guess there would be. 
Right. So, so I think every time your immune system is boosted, it, it does generally provide broader protection against these variant strains as a general rule. But I think we're just going to, there's two reasons that we would need boosters. One is because just immunity from natural infection or immunization fades. Um, and even though the predominant strain may still be the B117 strain, you need to be uh, boosted. Or because there's, there's the um, emergence of a variant which is very dis much distinct from the immunity that's induced by natural infection or immunization, in which case that's not really a booster as more of just a second generation vaccine. I see. So that's the, the expression, second generation vaccine. We kind of have to start fresh. So here's my other twist on that question. Um, if a person starts with Pfizer or Moderna or J&J, &J, so RNA or adenovirus, would they all get the same booster? You know how right now, like in Philadelphia, we started with one vaccine and then the, the uh, convention center had to stop. And the big concern was, oh, gosh, if I can't f get number two Pfizer, can I get Moderna? And we didn't want people to mix and match. So I guess that's my question. Depending on where you start, either Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J, &J, would all of all players get the same booster? We'll see. I mean, certainly the CDC, when when times were tough and we didn't have enough vaccine, said that under extraordinary circumstances, that if you got Pfizer as a first dose, you could get Moderna as a second dose and mm -hmm. vice versa. But in terms of mixing classes, meaning mRNA vaccines versus these replication-effective adenovirus vaccines like the J&J &J vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, there are no data on that. And yeah. um, the CDC hasn't stated that that was an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. At what point in time might we know if we'll need boosters? I guess that's kind of a silly question because you already said we don't know. We don't have enough data yet. So we're constantly generating data. I mean, now you know that the mm -hmm. effectiveness after natural infection immunization appears to be at least six months. I think soon we'll know by the end of the year whether it's a year and then the following year, two years and three years. And we'll, 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 we'll see. We'll mm -hmm. learn. You know, you and I are, are pretty close in on the timeline. And uh, uh, I was a fellow when uh, the HIV, the, the Human, human immunodeficiency virus was isolated. And it just reminds me so much of those times when so much was unknown, people were terrified. And it's fascinating not to see people get sick. It's crushing to see how people suffer, but um, we're learning so much about the immune system that maybe will help us with cancer. So there are silver linings to this, I hope. Are there blood tests available that show how long the vaccine provides immunization? Well, so, so the, it looks like sort of the, um, at least one immunological correlative protection is so-called virus-specific neutralizing antibodies. That's not really a commercially available test. The, the antibody tests that are available are just for virus-binding antibodies, and that's not the same thing. Um, so, so not commercially available, but we'll, we'll learn, we will learn about this in the next year or two, just how mm -hmm. long this, this immunity lasts. Mm -hmm. And this has been a great year for flu season, not great in a way that uh, because of social distancing and uh, more careful behavior, the flu has been at bay, but it is endemic and it requires a yearly vaccine. You're on the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee. How do you design a formula for each year's flu vaccine? Right. So what you do typically is you look at the, the influenza strains that are circulating in countries like Australia and South America that usually precede um, what happens here and usually predict what happens here. Um, there was not much flu this year, not only in the United States, but in the world. not only not much flu, there also wasn't much respiratory syncytial virus, which is a cause of bronchiolitis in young children. There wasn't much human coronaviruses. I mean, you know, what we did was we not only did we mask and social distance, we also basically closed schools, we closed businesses, we restricted travel, we brought the economy to its knees. And with that, we had a so much less human contact 
human to human contact that we uh, that we dramatically reduce these these respiratory viruses. It was a high price to pay for that. Um, but uh, I don't think that's going to be true next year or the year after. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, we had to start with a, a pound of caution. Am I right? I mean, who knew? Oh, sure, for sure. Nobody Abs would absolutely. Know. I mean, mm -hmm. it, I think that um, it would have been much, much worse had we not done what we did. Sure, sure. Do you see the same template in the future for COVID that you'll look at? I guess that wouldn't necessarily, well, it is seasonal. I guess we look at the opposite side of the world. As you say, Australia's winter is in in our January, is that how you might go about looking at um, boosters for COVID? You know, I think, the, the... I think I think we'll be I think really do think within the next year or two or three, we're going to have a much better idea about whether we need boosters. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think we can get on top. If we can just significantly slow the spread of this virus, decrease its ability to make variants, uh, I really do think we can we can get there. But we just there's a significant portion of the population that just exists in denialism, refuses to get a vaccine. It's painful. Mm -hmm. We have uh, uh, about a minute and a half, and we can start on this. I wanted to. I, I've been doing some reading too, and it said that the vaccines in China and Russia, but I think China because they have so much more. Uh, you know, that's where it started. Why is their vaccine considered inferior? That surprised me. Right. So, so the, there were studies done sort of in China and Brazil with that vaccine, which is an activated viral vaccine in the same way that you would make the, the inactivated polio vaccine or the rabies vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine. Um, it would be nice to see those studies done head to head um, with other vaccines. Uh, there's there's um, no reason to believe that an inactivated viral vaccine wouldn't be a good vac vaccine here. Um, so I, I, again, it's we sort of are dealing with science by press release. It's, it's often these these studies aren't published, and we're just looking at top line press release. So it's just really hard to know. I, I I'm not sure whether that that vaccine is clearly inferior. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that I remember hearing last year. Uh, but I interviewed uh, a vaccinologist from uh, Johnson & Johnson last April-ish, I guess. And I remember hearing that the Chinese published the, uh, the the genetic sequence of the vaccine that was created for SARS-1. And they had been doing, we had been doing work in America on SARS-1. And that kind of was a starting point that must have helped with warp speed because we already had the beginning of the vaccine for SARS-2. Um, it, it's just fascinating. Any comments about that? No, you're right. I, I think we didn't start from scratch here. Both SARS-1, which came out in 2002, and MERS, which are, are sort of arrived in 2012, um, that gave us a lot of information about these bat coronaviruses and how possibly to make vaccines against them. So that we weren't starting at ground zero. Yeah, and MERS is the Middle Eastern uh, virus, yes? Right. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Paul Offit. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. So wonderful to have Dr. Paul Offit here. We're talking about the COVID vaccine and COVID in general. Paul, if you were to debunk the most common myths, what would they include? Well, the one I get asked the most is, is, is about fertility. So women of childbearing age are worried about this 
uh, vaccine uh, decreasing their fertility. Um, that, that was born of a, 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 a petition that was sent by two researchers to the European Medicines Agency claiming falsely that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein was very similar to a protein called syncytion 1, which is important for the health of okay. the placenta. Um, that, so that therefore, if you were making an immune response to, to the spike protein, the viral spike protein, you also were inadvertently making an immune response to this, this syncytion 1 protein on placental cells, which was wrong. That was, first mm-hmm. of all, not true. Plus, you know, in, in when uh, the phase 3 trials were done by Moderna and uh, Pfizer, although the pregnant women were excluded from those trials and women who were in those trials were told not to get pregnant. Nonetheless, as Jeff Goldblum said in the movie Jurassic Park, life <laughs> finds a way. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were three dozen pregnancies uh, during that. And if and so, I mean, if it was true that, that the vaccine decreased fertility, then all those pregnancies, sh- instances of pregnancy should have been in the placebo, but they weren't. They were divided yeah. half and half, 18 and 18. And so that wasn't right. Also, remember when you're making an immune response to the spike protein after natural infection also, and, you know, they just had 100 million people that were infected by that vaccine in this true. country. Nonetheless, 3.6 million people were born, which is about what it was in the previous year or so. Um, that's just all wrong. And I don't, you know, it's so hard to unring the bell. It's so hard to unscare people yes. once you've scared them that no matter that, uh, that, I mean, I wrote an op-ed about this in, in a, something called The Hill. And still, that's the question that, you know, just doesn't end. Well, and I remember hearing a, a sermon one time and uh, it's like slander. You open a feather pillow, you let the feathers out, and you'll never recollect all of them. Once you've said something, it's pretty hard, as you say, to unring the bell. But I think... Um, we did a show on protecting your fertility a couple of weeks ago, and it was fascinating to me just about everything that they used to say would affect a woman's fertility might also affect a man's fertility, like alcohol, too much alcohol decreases sperm and egg uh, quality or, or obesity. Would that fear have uh, frightened men as well about their fertility? It sounds like it's placenta oriented, right? Well, again, I mean, given given the birth uh, cohort last year, that would that's an indicator that it didn't that at least the natural infection didn't affect uh, good male shape. or female fertility, and and the antibodies that are induced by the vaccine are the same antibodies that are induced by natural infection. Got it. Good to know. So then the big question was pregnant women, nursing women. I saw the New England Journal article on April 21st that talked about the the data that we see in women who are pregnant. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Right. So, so, so again, pregnant women were, um, you know, weren't, weren't, were not included in these studies. So we only have a handful, but, but there are more than 80, as of a few weeks ago, there were more than 80,000 pregnant women who have been vaccinated. Um, and Tom Shimabakura, who works at the CDC, published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which you just referenced, that looked at women who were pregnant who got the vaccine, compared them to women who were pregnant who didn't get the vaccine, to see if there was any difference in maternal outcomes or in fetal outcomes, because now hundreds of babies had been born no differences. So now pregnant women can know they can get this vaccine safely, and it's important for them to get the vaccine because they have a two to threefold increased risk if infected with SARS Mm. virus during their pregnancy of being hospitalized or having to go to the intensive care unit and be ventilated. So the wise choice, if a woman is pregnant, knowing that if she does contract COVID, she's at a much higher risk of severe disease going to intensive care, the wise suggestion is to get the vaccination. Exactly. The, the J&J vaccine, that's not an RNA-based, uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but um, six women, was it, uh, that had the clots? Did we need to pause the J&J vaccine, or again, was that uh, kind of media-driven? No well, offense against the media, but, you know, as you say, it scared people. You know, I, I think um, 
it was reasonable to pause it for a very short period of time, just to say mm -hmm. that here are these cases, these six cases of women who, when they got this replication defective human adenovirus vector, which can't reproduce itself by definition, but it brings, again, the gene into the cell that ultimately codes for the coronavirus spike protein. So again, you, you make the spike protein. Um, it was a rare phenomenon, initially estimated to be about one per million. Now it's left roughly 1.9 per million, but it's extremely rare. Remember also that the virus also causes blood clots. Yes. Even the severe blood clots, like the so-called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is a blood clot in the brain, um, that occurred in roughly now 1.9 per million people who were um, given the vaccine. It also occurs in five to six per uh, million people who are infected with the virus. So it's actually more common with the virus. So again, all the more reason to get a vaccine. So I think that vaccine is a value for people who really value a single dose, meaning homebound or really a transient population, you know, where it's going to be hard to get that second dose. It's, it's a value because, you're, you know, if you take a theoretical million people who are infected with COVID, 5,000 will die. So this, yes. sort of, you know, one per million who gets the blood clots is, uh, is a the lesser risk. And were we ever able to tell if any of those six women already had COVID, so the vaccine might have awakened their already upset immune system? Would that make sense or true, true and unrelated? Yeah, they weren't able to find any sort of predisposing um, uh, factors that would have explained why it happened to them and not others. Mm -hmm. But that, that's a, an interesting thought, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> I'm asking you to think, say that I'm interesting. Um, <laughs> no, the yes, RNA, yeah, the RNA vaccines, they were cleared. We hear the expression emergency use authorization. What does that mean? And at what point in time will these vaccines be approved for regular use or whatever the acceptable expression would be? Right. It's unfortunate. it's unfortunate we don't have another term because here's what it doesn't mean for these vaccines. It doesn't mean that the size of the trials was any different than a typical pediatric or adult vaccine trial. 30,000 for Moderna, 44,000 for Pfizer, 44,000 for Johnson Johnson. That is the size of any typical trial. Um, it doesn't mean safety follow-up was any different. The safety follow-up, which had to follow up for two months after the last dose, that's typical of any vaccine. Mm -hmm. The real difference was in, in length of time during which you had proven efficacy. So when those vaccines, those mRNA vaccines were approved in December, you could say that they were roughly 95% effective for a few months. You couldn't say that they were effective for longer. That's the only real difference. But unfortunately, the term emergency use makes people think that timelines were truncated, that safety guidelines were ignored, which really wasn't true. So, um, you know, by the end of the summer, I think probably both the mRNA vaccines will be licensed products, and maybe that'll make people feel better. But it's really more psychological than anything real. But that's the best explanation I've ever heard, that clearly we knew that they were safe. We Well, we had... Uh, efficacy. The question is the timeline after the 30,000 people were uh, vaccinated. Um, so that's very reassuring too. Um, it seems like this virus is here to stay. I read a great piece in the Cleveland Clinic the other day. And even if we reach a workable level of immunity here in the, in the States, we're still at risk, as you said earlier, because other countries who don't have access to the vaccine I remember hearing saying about 130 countries have not had one person vaccinated. How does that play out? Right. Um, you know, we still give a polio vaccine every every year in the United States, even though we have a, haven't had polio in this country since the late 1970s. The reason we do it is because the virus still exists in Pakistan and Afghanistan. There's mm -hmm. 195 countries out there. Most haven't given or many haven't given a single dose of vaccine. Until we get control of this vaccine in the world, um, we're still going to be at risk. And I, I give credit to the Biden administration now for its willingness to send vaccines out to the world, which is it's not just an altruistic act. It's something that we need also to protect ourselves 
themselves because, yeah. you know, it's international travel is common. Sure. It has become so easy to travel internationally. And, and you know, younger generations, I guess, because just like us at Zooming, you can click a button and talk to your friend across the country or across the world and hop on a plane and go. So in the countries that are affected by COVID and they don't have vaccines, how are they treating? Are we learning anything? Are they having any success with therapies uh, that work for outpatients? Have we learned anything from hydroxy or anything? You know, I think what we learned from hydroxychloroquine is that it doesn't work to either treat or prevent the disease. I, I think with the monoclonal antibodies, what we learned is frankly what we've learned in the history of passive immunotherapy dating back to the times of diphtheria antitoxin. I think you need to give high titered products and you need to give them early. So I think if, if, if these monoclonal antibodies are to work, what they will work to do is prevent you from, from going to the hospital. So they would, if they're going to be of value, they would have to be given in the outpatient setting. But again, um, your better bet by far is, is a vaccine. So you can make your own immune response instead of getting passive antibodies, which over time will fade. Mm -hmm. 400,000 people in a day in India. What are we seeing there? What are we learning from that? It's cataclysmic. It, oh. it, it tells you how bad this virus is and it'll continue oh. to kill people and continue to make variants. And it's it's hard to watch. I mean, it, it's, it is, it's what, what a I mean. pandemic looks like. It's oh. just grim. It's Dickensian. My my mother uh, lost her mother in uh, the Spanish flu, and uh, you know when you hear them talk about it, and her my mother's aunt was a nurse at PGH, Philadelphia General Hospital, uh, at the time, and uh, you know we're worried, and we do have resources. Imagine what it must have been like to be hundreds of years ago with the bubonic plague or some of these things. People uh, had to be terrifying. Well, on that note, let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Paul Offit. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And we're in our final segment learning so much about COVID and COVID vaccines. Paul, let's talk about the new CDC guidelines for wearing masks. Uh, they mentioned for those who are vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside or inside if you're mixing with other vaccinated people. And of course, masks will still be uh, required in hospital settings, doctor's offices, prisons, homeless shelters, and in public uh, transportation and uh, transportation hubs. Does that also apply to those who have immunity after recovering from COVID? I think it should. Um, you know, it's mm -hmm. uh, the simple way to look at this is that the, the, what the science teaches us recently is that that almost all of the infections that are occurring are occurring because people have come in contact with someone who was infected indoors. So there's fewer than 1% of these cases are from outdoor exposures. So I think people who wear masks or don't wear masks can, uh, sorry, who are vaccinated or unvaccinated can not, not wear masks outside. I think that's true. We're liberated for outside. Now, how about inside? So what they're saying is that, that again, if you look at people who are, who are hospitalized, like 99% aren't vaccinated. So if you're vaccinated, you're pretty safe. And so what they said, though, I think was a little confusing in that, that they said that vaccinated people don't have to wear masks inside, but unvaccinated people do. 
And I think you could extend that to not only vaccinated people, but people who've been naturally infected also don't need to wear masks. I think both of those things are true. But that's a little hard to adjudicate. I mean, exactly. it sort of throws it into the store's lap, right? I mean, if I walk into the Acme, we're right down the street here, mm-hmm. and uh, and I walk in and there's 50 people there and 25 aren't wearing masks, I have to assume that those 25 that aren't wearing masks have either been vaccinated or natural infection. In fact, that's a big assumption. So I think that uh, I wish they had uh, had just held off for a few months on that kind of recommendation. I think it also isn't fair to young children, children less than 12 who can't be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Now they're walking into a store where they are probably a little less safe. And so they just need to make sure they're always wearing masks indoors. Do you think uh, that if we uh, you know, continue to move forward and uh, say, listen, if you're vaccinated or you've been sick, you get to toss the mask. Do you think that might be an incentive for more people to get vaccinated? I think that was the thinking behind it, that oh. it would be an incentive. But I think the mm-hmm. other thing is it's an incentive for people who aren't vaccinated and to don't cheat. like to wear a mask, just not to wear a mask and yeah, go yeah, inside yeah. and yeah. assume that uh, everybody will think they're vaccinated. Lowers the bar a little bit. Right. Now, here's another question. The breakthrough cases, I'm saying breakthrough in quotations. Are they, what, what do we know about that? Right. I think I think you're right to put it in quotations. I think what, what you, for example, that Yankees story, you know, there was yes. there were there, these people who had all been vaccinated. Um, and yet one of the coaches, I think, developed symptomatic infection. And then there were about six or seven other players who also had, quote unquote, breakthrough infections. But what they really had was an asymptomatic infection, which is fine. I mean, what you want from these vaccines is to keep you from having to seek medical attention, keep you from being severely symptomatic, keep you from being in the hospital, or keep you from being in the morgue. This, these vaccines do that. I don't consider those breakthrough. It's a breakthrough if you, you're so sick that you have to seek medical attention. And, and the yeah. vaccines seem to prevent that. Well, again, like Bill Maher, who uh, the other night said, you know what, I'm fully vaccinated. And I had a, a screening test. When we do colonoscopy or, or endoscopy for our patients before we bring them in, we do screening or uh, I think Bill's was probably um, uh, an employment screen. Every so often they, they do uh, COVID testing and his was positive. He said, I'm completely free of symptoms. Is a false positive test a possibility here? For our listeners, that means you have a blood test that says you have something and you really don't, and a false negative, like in the beginning of COVID, weren't 30% of the uh, nasal swabs falsely negative? You're feeling really sick, you sure look like you have COVID, but the, the nasal swab was negative. So. They can be false in either direction, I guess is what I'm asking. Could any of these right, just but be- Right, it is possible that, that he has he has uh, asymptomatic infection, which is fine. Up. I mean, yeah, yeah. and I think you know, what, what happened with the Yankees, for example, is that, you know, the, the what Major League Baseball does is they screen people periodically. So sure. you're finding something. If you did the same thing in the general population, you would find that too. I think Major League Baseball may be on the verge of stopping doing that, which would be smart. Yeah. Um, the vaccines that can be RNA and DNA, like the Pfizer, Moderna, uh, versus ones that are, you piggyback a spike onto the adenovirus, how do they work differently so far? Right. So the way the mRNA vaccine works is that the, the mRNA enters cells, the cytoplasm of cells, it's then translated to a protein, which is then excreted from the cell or broken down in the cell and put on the surface of the cell. Um, in the case of the adenovirus vector, that, that virus enters the cell, then it enters the nucleus, where then the DNA is converted to messenger RNA, and then the messenger RNA goes to the cytoplasm. So it's the same final pathway. In both gotcha. cases, the messenger RNA makes the protein. Paul, any parting words for our listeners? You've been fantastic. 
No, my, my parting word is 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 get vaccinated. It just it just amazes me that we spend so much time talking about masking and who should wear a mask and who doesn't wear a mask. There's enough vaccine now for everybody. Let's get about another 1,800 million people vaccinated, and then we can start to look at at the, in the rearview mirror at the mirror at this virus. Yes. Um, but I don't know what the reluctance is. Hopefully, everybody who listens to your show now is going to get vaccinated. Oh, I hope so. And then we can all sing, "We are the world." If people wanted to. <laughs> read more about it and and hear you're very eloquent you explain things so beautifully we would direct them to um well i would go to our website the the, mm-hmm. uh, the children's hospital philadelphia's vaccine education center which is vaccine.chop chop.edu which which really we have a whole covid section there that answers any question you could possibly have about this virus beautiful so for our listeners you can visit vaccine.chop.edu Paul Offit, you the man. Thank you so much for all your hard work and for saving millions of lives. You are highly respected and well-loved, and you should know that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, your real champion, presented by the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. And now, for your real champion. I call this segment, There's No Place Like Home. Medical school a time of intense training about anatomy, diseases, treatments, and learning how it all fits together. But it's not always as simple as the song says, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone. Not every chest pain is heart attack, not every belly pain is appendicitis, and not every patient with confusion has dementia. Here's where our story begins. Earlier this year, we saluted Dr. Laura Weinstein. In 1992, she was a first-year medical student at Jefferson Medical College and started a program called Jeff Hope a medical clinic in homeless shelters run by medical students supervised by family medicine physicians. Now, almost 30 years later, the fruits of her labor continue to grow with clinics in four homeless shelters and one harm reduction site in Philadelphia. David Ney began volunteering at Jeff Hope once a week in his first year of med school. Now, in his third year, he's quickly learned that good care involves more than prescribing pills for high blood pressure or asking a patient to lose weight to prevent diabetes. One night this winter, an elderly woman wandered into the clinic. She was pleasant and friendly, but she couldn't provide her name, her age, where she came from, or how she got to the shelter. When David asked the shelter staff, she had already been there for three nights, but her identity was a mystery to them as well. He took her blood pressure and it was elevated. It sparked her memory. She recalled being told about high blood pressure in the past. Ongoing conversation led to remembering her first name, the dilemma now, an elderly woman with no memory and no trace of an ID. Is the memory loss acute from a stroke, a medication, kidney or liver disease, a cause that needs immediate attention, or is it a form of stable dementia and a patient who needs a home base? What he did sense was a clearly frightened soul and he wasn't going to abandon her. With continued questions, the patient finally recognized the word dementia and that it was part of her story. That night, the entire group of volunteers, 12 med students in all, formed a posse. Working in shifts, these students took turns staying with the patient around the clock. They put aside their own studies to accompany it to local emergency departments, social security office, even the DMV, hoping one clue would trigger her memory for her last name, a phone number. Several other classmates with experience in social services joined the effort. Soon they were sharing multiple text and email chains, hoping one link would connect this woman to her family. 
After a nearby hospital provided an address, they took the basics, her name, address, and social security number, to the local police station to inquire for any reports of missing persons. The police gave the team another phone number, which David dialed. He heard the voice of a woman, and before he could even finish the story, the woman cried out with relief, You found my sister! The cheering spread through the room to the patient's children and grandchildren. After five days of despair, their mother, grandmother, sister was safe and coming home. The exhilaration was immeasurable for the family as well as David. David Nay plans to study psychiatry and specialize in treating patients with memory disorders. He realizes he'll probably never cure Alzheimer's disease. And unlike other issues that have measurable metrics like successful weight loss or improved blood pressure, dementia is still somewhat of a mystery. What he has felt was the impact of memory loss and how it can cause safety issues for the patient and a family. As one of his first teachers, I can say firsthand that David Nay is intelligent, insightful, and caring. In this age of telemedicine and technocommunication, David May and his fellow medical students give us hope that medicine will remain as an art as well as a science, driven by the hearts as well as the minds of tomorrow's doctors. We salute you, David Nay. This week's Your Real Champion. Thank you for listening. And again, read more about the vaccine for COVID at vaccine.chop.edu. And thanks again to Dr. Paul Offit. Listen to all of our shows on yourradiodoctor.net. Tomorrow is my birthday. And I'm hoping I get the entire collection of all the songs ever recorded by Frank Sinatra. Stay tuned for my man, Sid Mark. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.